Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode 74 of Health Unchained. Before we get to the episode, I would just like to remind everyone to register for the IEEE Healthcare Virtual Series on blockchain and AI. The online event will include keynote speakers, training workshops, a job fair, and other building blocks. I'm also honored to be chairing the podcast series for the event throughout the rest of the year and into 2021. A link to register can be found in the show notes. On today's episode, I interview the founder and CEO of an early stage startup called Humanitarian Physicians Empowerment Community, or HPEC for short. If you are a doctor or physician, this episode is for you. Dr. Leah Houston is an example of an entrepreneur who identified a problem she personally was facing and began a company to address that problem. As an emergency medicine physician, she discovered that problem was the lack of physician autonomy and lack of control over her patient-doctor relationships. Her solution is to develop a platform that uses self-sovereign digital identities to allow physicians to maintain their own provable credentials, cutting the administrative waste involved with provider credentialing. HPEC still have not developed a product and are currently in the research and design phases. Lee is a strong believer in a decentralized model for governance and is hoping to complete her Reg CF crowdfunding campaign in the first week of November. I really enjoyed speaking with Leah, and I hope you all enjoy this episode. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Dr. Leah Houston. Leah has worked as an emergency physician across the United States, and in 2019, she founded the Humanitarian Physicians Empowerment Community, or HPEC for short. Uh, HPEC's mission is to restore physician autonomy by using self-sovereign identity technology. Leah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here, Ray. You have no idea. Awesome. Well, I think it'd be great if you can first kind of introduce yourself, like, where did you grow up? How did you get here? Yeah, well, I'm an all-American. I'm a third-generation Greek-Norwegian, born in California, raised in New York. Uh, My parents were a couple of hippies. And yeah, I'm the first in my family to go through the, you know, college process. So. Oh, wow. And you've already accomplished so much. So that's, that's really awesome. What drove you to the healthcare industry? I'm a nerd, you know, I, I hit chemistry and physics in high school and I was like, holy crap, this defines our reality. I need to know more about this. And um, I just was so into it. And my uh, high school physics teacher, uh, Frank Parisi, uh, he said to me, why don't you be a doctor? Like, you're you're you know you're good with people blah 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 and it just it hadn't even occurred to me as a possibility because when you are raised in poverty and like you're nobody in your family has ever gone that far the glass ceiling is thick and low um but yeah i, I was totally fascinated and i said well, now that door is open that door of possibility and so i pursued it you know that's really interesting i i was also interested in getting into medicine as well you know a few years ago and the reason for me was that knowing how the human body and mind work really comes down to why we even exist, right? That's like the final question. Why are we here? Well, we can find out more through medicine, at least. That's one way to do it. Totally. And, and you know, the greatest philosophers of history were also scientists and mathematicians for that reason, you know? Um, and so, yeah, we can go down the, that rabbit hole if we wanted to. <laughs> we probably will in a little bit, maybe. Um, we'll see if there's time. I'd like to learn how you first learned about blockchain technology because we're going to get into HPEC or HPEC and the company you're building, but what first brought you to the idea of 
possibly using blockchain technology in your company or you know blockchain at all yeah so as physicians you know despite what the public thinks we don't make that much money and so on our spare time oftentimes we uh, are trying to find ways to generate additional revenue so that we can survive and so that we can be comfortable in life and so I was an investor, I was a real estate investor, um, and I was like getting into the day trading world. You know, us emergency physicians are like a little, you know, risk, you know, we're risk takers. And I was talking to one of my fellow physician colleagues about which investments we did. And he said, well, check out Bitcoin. And this was in 2012 when Bitcoin was like $10 a share or something crazy, not share, but $10 a coin or something crazy like that. And I was like, why is he all excited about this? And I was like reading about it and I was learning about it. And I was like watching it climb from $10 to $20. And, you know, long story short, I kind of forgot about it. I spent a while on it, but I forgot about it. But I did continue to watch projects in the space and to pay attention to the early healthcare applications of this. Um, and then fast forward 2015, I moved to Silicon Valley um, just because I wanted to just get away, go to do something else. And I started meeting. Where'd you move some from? Of, let's see, where was I? I was in Miami at the time. So um, I was working in Miami. That's the first place I worked. I was trained in upstate New York in, in residency. And I moved to Miami with my now ex-husband. And that's that where trip. I was living. So when I got divorced, I said, how far away can I get from this place? And I like went to San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I started meeting the people who founded um, some of the early blockchain companies and who were the original miners and who, um, you know, things like that. And so paid attention. Yeah. And as a trained physician, when did you realize the flaws in the provider credentialing system? Because I believe that's the purpose or like that's like the real goal for HPEC is to improve provider credentialing, or at least that's part of it. Am I right? I'll let you explain the that's story there. That's a tiny part of it. I mean, we're trying to create a paradigm shift here. Um, but yes, you know, when I went from residency to my first job, there was like this huge stack of paperwork that took probably four months to complete. And I was like, what the hell is this? This doesn't make any sense. Why do I have to say 15 times in 15 different places where I went to medical school? These idiots know. Mm -hmm. I sent them my copy of my, you know, residency and, and medical license three months ago. Why are they asking me to fill this out redundantly a million times? And so I said, you know, maybe this is just like a first time thing. And then I got my second job and it happened again. And then my third and it happened again. And I wanted to rip my eyes out. But everybody was like, well, it's just how it is. You got to just deal with it. Oh, I hate Not that okay. when people say that. Yeah. It's like, oh, just the way it is. Like, it doesn't always have to be that way, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We are still living, especially in healthcare, in this archaic, analog, legacy-driven system that is not serving the patients or the caregivers and physicians that are caring for them. So what is the vision for HPEC? Is that what you say, HPEC, or do you say HPEC? I call it HPEC. I say HPEC, but you can say HPEC. I mean, you know, the vision is to completely unplug from the matrix to unplug physicians and patients from these third-party systems that create this friction, this waste, this redundancy, and as Shoshana Zuboff would say, surveillance capitalism over the pain and suffering of patients, because that's what's actually happening. You know, for those of you out there who have had a run-in with a healthcare system in the last, you know, five, 10, 15 years, what was your experience like? I, I'm guessing it probably sucked. Uh, there's no transparency in price. You have no idea what to expect. You have no real information. You're being rushed through a system. Why does it suck so bad? And the answer is it's being controlled by a mafia of third party, vertically integrated systems that want to capture as much value for themselves and trickle down as little as possible to the actual patients receiving the care. That's the truth. Yeah, and you know, I'm thinking about recent times now with COVID and all of that, there's a lot of money going into the healthcare system 
from the government in one way or another. I feel like long term that might make it even harder for the healthcare system to kind of stop their hunger for that that funding is just going to only grow every time we help them. I think we're not creating this free marketplace, this competitive marketplace where people can actually build things um, and not have to worry about, like you said, the mafia or large organizations basically strong arming them. Um, do you agree? What right. do you think? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, people say, oh, we need to get rid of, you know, free market healthcare is what's destroyed this. This is not a free market. This is a closed, colluded market where there's a monospony of uh, a few, very few that have control. And when I talk about, I'm going to be very specific here. Buca, Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, Aetna Cigna mm -hmm. are one group of monopoly players. Um, the health systems, Tenet Healthcare, HCA, ACA, all these large vertically integrated health systems across the United States are another group of these closed, you know, uh, monopolistic type of players. Um, and then pharma, you think about, I'm not talking about like the individual pharmaceutical companies, although in some ways they do have a lot of control over the supply chain of medic medications. I'm really talking about the pharmacy benefit managers who control where those go. So who are some pharmacy benefit managers? CVS Caremark. We're not just talking about the drugstore where you can go get your toothbrush and your toothpaste and pick up a bottle of aspirin. We are talking about a huge, very moneyed system that controls what is on the formulary mm -hmm. at your for your health insurance. Walgreens is another one. Express Scripts. I believe Target has a PBM. These are all controlling what patients are allowed to receive and how much they're going to pay for it. Well, wouldn't it make sense for the doctor to kind of tell me what I should be taking or receiving, not having that, you know, be instructed by a PBM? Yes, man. And this is this is the whole reason um, that we're building what we're building. You know, you asked what the what the vision is, and I didn't really answer. I just said we want to unplug from the matrix. But <laughs> the answer is that I want to create a system where patients and their physicians are now at the center again, where that relationship between doctor and patient is private again, where my recommendations are not incented or influenced by any of those third party systems that I just mentioned, where they're only incentivized by what I know is right for you as my patient. So what's stopping you right now? Nothing's stopping me. I mean, we're going. We're well, doing I, I it. I feel like there are things stopping you. Like there are institutions probably or companies in place that probably either don't want your idea to be successful or that might think that it's too risky because then you're not going to have all the, the protocols in place for, for patients to get safe care or something. Like what, 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 are, you know, what are some of the reasons why people um, might not want to be part of HPEC? Well, so just to let you know, physicians have been collaborating on protocols for a long time. We've been coming up with policy and practice guidelines long before these other systems have tried to push them upon us. True. We want the best thing for our patients. We all took the Hippocratic Oath. You know, when you are a specialist, you know, I, I studied emergency medicine for three years before I was allowed to touch a patient by myself. Um, you know, neurosurgeons do that for, I think, another eight to eight to 11 years, depending on whether they subspecialize in pediatric neurosurgery or whatever. These individuals have an immense amount of knowledge. And this is after the, you know, the eight years of undergraduate and medical school. So this is, you know, 15 year pipeline for a lot of people. We care about making sure patients are getting the best care. This is not about doctors rejecting, you know, being told what to do. This is about us rejecting moneyed systems that do not have our patients' best interests at heart from incentivizing us inappropriately. That's what this is about. And so in a system that I'm trying to build where physicians have their own self-sovereign identity, where they can communicate electronically, identify who they are in a digital space and communicate with their peers, with their, with their colleagues to come up with um, consensus about 
practice guidelines, uh, what to do with patients, where to refer people, what's the best treatment. Um, you know, that's the system we're trying to build. I'm trying to get a better understanding of decentralized or self-sovereign identity. Uh, that's been talked about a lot, a lot of ways to think about it. Uh, there's a lot of companies in the blockchain space working on this. Um, Uport is one example, I think, that your company might be familiar with. So do you want to talk a little bit about what decentralized or self-sovereign identity means and why is it important? Yeah, of course. And, you know, I want everybody here to just zoom out and to acknowledge that we are talking about a new way of doing everything, uh, a paradigm shift in how we communicate digitally. And so the same people who came up with uh, the concept of a URL, the same people who designed the system that shows that a website's going to be HTTPS, um, those same individuals are now designing the self-sovereign identity systems. You know, this is going to change how we communicate information. And, you know, basically it's, it's anchored to the concept of DIDs or decentralized identifiers. And so with the decentralized identifier, it points to information um, that is stored by an individual, that is owned by an individual, and that is controlled by an individual. So when you think about the healthcare system, uh, instead of your health records being stored and owned by some large health system, where I, as your doctor, have to be working there in order to ever see them, um, and where I, I can't, if I want to leave that health system, I never will be able to access those records again. We're building a new system where that information will be owned by you as the patient. A directory of where that information is will be anchored to a distributed ledger or a blockchain. Uh, and so when I document something about you, it's attached to my self-sovereign identity as a physician. I transfer it to you. I anchor that um, proof of that information onto this distributed ledger. And then you also own and keep that information in your self-sovereign space as a patient so that when you go somewhere else you can take that information with you if you see another practitioner you can take that information with you you can decide whether or not they're going to see that information and similarly for me if i move as a doctor my patients come with me i no longer am being forced to give away all of this private and protected health information that Frankly, you know, these large systems are scraping this data, they're doing data analytics on it, and they're trying to find ways to deny services to you as a patient and to deny me payment for those services as a doctor. That's why healthcare has gotten so expensive. That is the problem that we are trying to solve with HPEC. Wow. Yeah. And I think I want to get a little bit deeper into self-sovereign identity. I think it's important because, it, you know, if I'm a physician now, and I work at a health system, for example, and they use, you know, Epic, for example, as their EMR. And then I log in every day with my account as a physician. I could see all my patient records. Um, and then let's say I quit one day. I want to leave that health system. You're saying if I leave going to, you know, across the United States, I'm going to work somewhere else. Those patients' records I can't access anymore. Is that, or if the patient's wanted to still see me they would have to export their records probably not very easy to do now and then i would have to import them into my new system maybe not so easy to do either um and you're what you're describing is a way for all of that to just kind of work seamlessly yes you're talking about the lack of interoperability and uh the information blocking that these current systems are creating and so you know, I want people to understand that there is a big movement happening right now from a regulatory standpoint. We are now starting to have the conversation about personal data ownership and personal data privacy. And I'm not just talking about GDPR or the California Data Protection and Privacy Act. I'm talking about the 21st Century Cures Act, which was finalized this summer um, by the Department of Health and Human Services. And in the 21st Century Cures Act, 
they specifically say that they are going to start penalizing these systems who are creating information blocking for patients and they're going to start essentially enforcing interoperability standards among these systems meaning that you know what you just said it's probably not that easy you're going to not have to say that anymore hmm. at some day soon in the future if if these third party systems start complying with this new regulation which i recommend they do it is interesting the double edged sword with regulation in some way it's it's helpful right in this case and other ways it kind of limits people's ability to try new technology as well so it's kind of interesting let's talk more about the current process for a doctor to get medical privileges in a clinic or hospital explain how it is now and then i want to learn more about what you envision for these providers in the future get into the details <laughs> yeah i mean so just to give you a little bit of a, a snapshot of it it takes two to six months for a reason. So there's no way that I'm going to be able to explain this, like what we do during that two to six months in this few minutes that we have. Um, but long story short, you know, I went to medical school once. I went to residency once. I took my board certification in emergency medicine once. I took all of the other tests once. I got my first um, year in my, my, of my medical licenses once. So that process shouldn't need to be repeated, repetitively verified. So the problem of credentialing is a problem of primary source verification. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you go to apply for a loan for a, a mortgage, they want to verify that you're able to work. Okay, where do they get that information? They get your taxes. Um, they get maybe your most recent bank statements. That's primary source verification enough for them. In the practice of medicine, they need to go to every single hospital I ever worked at to make sure that I didn't kill a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. They need to go to my medical school and make sure that my degree is real. We don't want to catch me if you can, you know, uh, sure. kind of situation. Um, right now, there's no space for me to store that proof digitally so that I can show it once and be the primary source of verified truth. Right now, every single time they have to go back every single to every single medical school, to every single step of training, to every single, and you know, there are centralized bodies of credentialing that kind of check up on us. And so they have to pay them a toll to get that proof that I didn't do some negligent thing or that I wasn't sued. And it's a huge long process full of friction um, that is tethered to the analog world, really. Got that. So, you know, what would you say the adoption and awareness rate is in healthcare for blockchain technologies? How are people thinking about it now? I think every single large vertically integrated system, um, every single one of those entities that I mentioned is are building blockchain projects. Now, when we talk about blockchain, we know that there are closed permissioned projects and there's open permissionless projects. And when I say blockchain and everybody's adopting it, I'm talking about closed permissioned projects. Every single one of these large organizations is using blockchain in that way. That's my, that's my take. Um, as far as the truly decentralized self-sovereign systems that we like to talk about, uh, very few to none. What are the biggest barriers to this adoption? Well, the biggest barriers to adopting anything new are the people. You know, when you think about Uber, for example, they used to have to pay people, you know, $5 for a free ride if you download our app just to get people to adopt it. Um, so the barriers with picking up a new technology lies with the individual. Is it something that's easy to use? Is it something that makes my life better? And is it something that is going to, um, you know, be rapidly adopted. And so those first users of the systems are the ones that are going to drive whether or not those systems are going to uh, become reality. When people talk about blockchain, sometimes they say that blockchain could provide more trust. And, you know, the problem you're describing, you know, for people or health systems going back and re-verifying primary sources multiple times. Um, but when people say blockchain can 
provide more trust. What does that mean? Well, it means that you don't need third parties to create trust for you anymore. Um, blockchain allows for trust between peers, whether they be two business entities or whether they be two individuals. Um, and it's inherent in the cryptography. The cryptography creates trust because when you have proof written onto a ledger and that proof is permanent and that proof is then copied on thousands of other computers where you can't cross things off and cook the books and lie about what happened in the past because it's permanent, that creates trust by cryptography and that uh, eliminates the need for some third party entity to be the trusted system. Yeah, and oftentimes I think about like a future where all of our data is on some sort of blockchain system and it seems like a possible utopia. What are some of the possible risks that we could be taking by putting everything on the blockchain? Well, I don't think that we should ever put our own data on the blockchain. I think that we should hold and store and own and control our own data. Um, and I think decentralized storage solution solutions, potentially decentralized cloud storage solutions um, that are, you know, also anchored to this cryptography where it has, you know, the individual has ownership and agency. I think that's where it is. I don't think the blockchain should store any of my personal information. I don't think it's allowed to from a GDPR standpoint. Mm -hmm. But as a patient, I think that you should have all your records on your phone and on your hard drive of your own personal computer. And I think that we need to develop encrypted solutions that allow you to um, store it in some backup place where nobody else can see it but you with your private keys. So the dystopia around it is that this is a new technology. Uh, and just like, you know, the World Wide Web was deployed to the public in 1991. And so think how far we've come with websites. You know, yeah. remember what websites looked like in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, you know, this is going to look and feel like that in the beginning, you know. So that's, you know, the, the stuff that's not fun. But once we get past that point, we're going to have these horizontally applied, uh, frictionless uh, systems that empower the individual. Yeah, I think you're right. Like in the 90s, if someone wanted to buy something on eBay or you know, the early 2000s, putting in your credit card into the internet was a very risky thing people perceived at, you know, at that time. No one wanted to use their credit card online. They, are, they were going to get scammed. Um, but now, like, everyone's got their multiple credit cards saved on multiple accounts in centralized systems, which is pretty interesting. Um, and no one bats an eye. It's just, you know, business as usual. Right. right. Can decentralized provider credentialing improve overall digital health technology adoption? Absolutely. You know, especially with coronavirus, how we're dealing with telemedicine. Who is that person on the other side of the screen? Are they really a doctor? Or are they just pretending? Yeah. Um, yeah. How long have they been in practice? Do they actually have credentials, experience, knowledge in the thing, the specific thing that you're asking about? Would you like to know that before giving them all of your personal information and showing them the rash on your butthole? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is this is real stuff. And so, you know, this this type of self-sovereign identity model will create trust in a system like that. Yeah, and I think I'm glad you mentioned telehealth because I think that's, you know, obviously going to continue to grow post-COVID, hopefully. Um, there will be a post-COVID, right? And I think what's interesting is in the past, providers were licensed in a state. They would practice in that state. Maybe they would be in two states if they're bordering states or something. Um, but now you can have a provider license in all 50 states technically and then seeing patients all over the country and that could be fine. But, you know, we don't really have that system set up yet so that we can easily provide that primary source uh, credentialing information. Uh, it takes a lot of time to get licensed in multiple states. And then for any company to hire you, or health system or telehealth company, for example, they have to do their work 
and do that credentialing. Make sure that um, they're verifying all the information the provider gives. It's just not easy. It could be easier oh, yeah. potentially with what you're trying to build with HPEC, it sounds like. Right. And, you know, as you are looking for a doctor to take care of you or to ask that important question or, you know, and you see how difficult it is to find that person and to get that appointment and then how much that sucks when you actually do have that appointment usually because you're being rushed and there's a bunch of nonsense that you don't understand why they're wasting your time with. This is why. This is why. If you eliminate the friction of credentialing and identity verification, then you're freeing up the physician to take care of people mm -hmm. instead of do all that nonsense. Could you describe your technology stack? So um, this is based on DIDs, decentralized identifiers. You know, as mentioned, you know, this is kind of going to be a new way that we transfer digital information. So, you know, I don't think it's going to replace URLs or HTTPS or any of those things, but it's going to be a new system that allows us to verify truth. And so if you go to the WC3 uh, website, the WC3 consortium, you can see the standards by which these DIDs, these decentralized identifiers are being built. And they're being built in a way that an individual will be anchored to them, whether it's an individual person or an entity or a business, uh, where that anchoring will be you know, this permanent, verifiable, cryptographically secure, in, you know, information pointing device mm -hmm. uh, that is not owned or controlled by a third party, meaning decentralized. And so that did is going to be anchored to either a distributed ledger or a blockchain. And then it's also going to be anchored to the individual. And that is the essence of self-sovereign identity. That is the essence of this new way of interacting with the digital world that we are all building. Do you know, so you mentioned it'll be a public ledger. Do you have a specific blockchain protocol in mind that you'll be using? Oh, I mean, I, I think that certain things are going to be anchored to different blockchains depending, right? Mm -hmm. um, I personally think that really important things like my credentials as a physician should be anchored to extremely decentralized spaces so that I know that um, nobody's going to hit the delete button and, you know, my proof of my identity is going to be deleted. And so, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain is very decentralized in some ways and then other ways it's not, you know, we can get to, down that rabbit hole as well. You know, the Ethereum blockchain, uh, the more nodes, the better, uh, the more individual, you know, the more projects, the better. Um, but then like there might be some things that are anchored to private closed permissioned blockchains. Um, you know, for example, if, if, you know, patients are using uh, Fitbit and they're making an agreement with that company that their data is going to be there, where that data is being pointed to might be on a, on a blockchain that's owned by Fitbit. And that's going to have to be something that the individual patient chooses whether or not they like that and whether or not that's the kind of system they want to interact with. Knowing that Fitbit can change their, their role, their protocol, their price, their everything, and in, in an instant, you might lose that data, you know? Um, right, and I think that's a good point because Fitbit isn't currently a decentralized autonomous organization. And it sounds like, you know, what you're trying to build with HPEC is a decentralized autonomous organization that runs itself in a way. So even at, even after you stop being the CEO in the far, far future, um, it'll still function as it was before. So that's the you got it. part of it. Got it. I think that's important for people to understand, too. It's it's these are not just companies. These blockchain organizations are starting. They're sort of self-sufficiently running communities that you, you are initiating and then having it like work itself out um, but it still sounds like you're early on on selecting which protocol you want to use for your for your system that hasn't been built out yet how much has well, been built out i guess is the question i think so we're working. just in the design phase right now you know we're just in conversations i mean uh we just joined the trust over ip foundation as a contributing member you know so we are part of the you know and i've been involved in that community and part of that community and like watching on the sidelines and contributing a little bit since 2018. Um, but these are the people that are designing the standards. Mm -hmm. 
you know? And so um, we have chosen what we're doing. We are going to be using the standards that are created by the WC3 consortium. These are decentralized identifier standards. Um, they can be anchored to any blockchain. So when you say which blockchain, um, you know, there's actually some people in the community that don't think we should be anchoring things to blockchain. They point to other potential, you know, decentralized database type models. Um, there's some, you know, super bearish and super bullish in that community. So, um, you know, we there's a bunch of people that are working on projects in the Ethereum blockchain, the Hyperledger, Aries Hyperledger Indie, um, the Ethereum blockchain, as you mentioned, Uport. Um, it, it, the blockchain doesn't really matter in this case. What matters is the self-sovereignty. Um, and so I, we're building it for that. We're building it for self-sovereignty. Got it. Um, and how much do you think it's going to cost to develop this technology and market it, have people start adopting it? What's your projected cost? To do it right, it's going to cost a million dollars. Okay. To do it right. Uh, and that's like in, within a one year time frame. Um, listen, I mean, everything is an evolving project, For you sure. know? Um, so yeah, I mean, if we are able to raise the funds to build out V1, we've already raised enough to build our MVP. That's why we're building it. Um, you know, after we're done building the MVP, testing it, having, you know, physicians onboard onto the platform, experience it, and we have user feedback, then we can take that in order to build V1. And I'm not a technical person. I'm not a blockchain developer. I'm not an SSI developer. Uh, but I've spoken to many people who know a lot about this stuff. And that's their estimated cost to build this the way that we conceive it uh, is about a million bucks. And will it take a year? I think it depends. You know, Do we get the right developers on the project? Do we get the passionate people who want to make this a reality? Um, you know, are we going to make mistakes? Sure. Are we going to piss some money away on those mistakes? Probably. I'm going to try to mitigate that risk as much as possible. But you know, um, a lot of it depends on, yes, funding, and yes, the people that are chosen. That makes sense. And once you, you know, start rolling it out, what's your business model going to look like? How do you as a organization continue to pay your um, employees? Well, so um, everybody says you can't really have a business model when you're this early as a startup. But you know, our conceivable business model that we are um, currently anchored to, uh, that we are open to changing is uh, the concept that the physician patient relationship when a physician provides services, they're creating value. Um, and then they're compensated for those services. And so if a physician chooses to be compensated through this platform, we will take a small transactional fee. Whether they're being compensated to share their credentials, whether they're being compensated to share their data around their prescribing patterns or their referral patterns, whether they're being compensated to provide the services to the patients, if a small transactional fee, a very small transactional fee around the, the cost of a credit card is you know, siphoned off of that interaction and used to power the network and return uh, money to the investors, then we believe, especially because of the amount of value that the, those, that physician community creates, that we'll be, be able to very easily not only power this network, but drive down the cost of healthcare um, eliminate that 30% waste of every healthcare dollar that's currently happening and restore privacy and trust of the doctor-patient relationship, which is the ultimate goal. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. The Health Industry Business Communications Council, or HIBCC, recently announced that its health industry number, HIN, system is now available to registered HIN licensees via Chronicle's blockchain-enabled MediLedger network. By using MediLedger, HIN pharma industry licensees will both be able to access and use real-time HIN data 
and incorporate it directly into their live business processes. Manufacturers, distributors, and GPOs, or group purchasing organizations, on the MetaLedger network use its contracts and chargeback solution to ensure pricing contracts are aligned. The solution guarantees that distributors always have valid pricing for customers, which include hospitals, pharmacies, and clinics, and that chargebacks are accurate. HIBCC's HIN data is a crucial part of identifying which customers are eligible for which contracts. Through this solution, when HIN records are updated, all participants see the same changes in real time. Thus, there is no confusion related to customer HIN identity when processing a chargeback. With the HIN data now integrated into the MediLedger network, all of the benefits of HIN data in the contracts and chargeback solution can be replicated across other solutions developed for many other processes between trading partners. Suzanne Somerville, CEO of Chronicled, said incorporating HIN data into the MediLedger network is an incredible example of the value MediLedger can offer as a platform. Future solutions can now be developed with HIN data already established as a key building block. This is a fantastic development for the quickly growing MediLedger network. A link to this press release can be found in the show notes. I've interviewed Suzanne in episode 66 of Health Unchained. I highly recommend you listen to that episode to learn more about her vision and plans for Chronicled and the MetaLedger Network. And now let's get back to the show with Leah Houston of HBEC. Is there like a token? Are you planning to have like a token or a coin associated with the company or or not? So our corporate documents do include token class stock, meaning if that is the direction we want to go someday, um, and when I say we, I talk about, I'm talking about the physician community because this is a community driven effort and physicians are the ones who have primarily been the investors in this project. This is a project for them. And when those decisions are being made, it will be a decision that's made with the physician community in mind and they'll have a say. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your crowdfunding process? Like how did you find the platform you selected for crowdfunding? Because I know that's something of interest to a lot of startups now as well. Yeah, I mean, so the reason that we chose crowdfunding um, is because if I'm wanting to build this new system for the physician patient community, then, and if I really want to be building a decentralized system, then the owners need to be the users, right? You know, we're not, if you're, if, if you're not paying for something, you are the product is, you know, was one of the quotes that was said in this recent movie, uh, The Social Dilemma that I saw this past weekend. You know, we aren't wanting to be a part of that old way of being. We're creating a new way of being where the individuals who are taking part of something and contributing something are the ones who also capture the majority of the value that that system creates. And so crowdfunding is a, a mirror image of that value system that we're trying to, to build. So uh, in order to allow the physician community to become a part of this early, to own a piece of this early, to become equity shareholders and to help design and build this future with us, I had to apply for a crowdfunding. And so I looked up every single FINRA crowdfunding portal and I went down ABCDEF and I applied to every single one of them. And Fundopolis was the first one who accepted us. And that's how I picked them. Awesome. That's really great. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned the word community many times. And I think that's really important. The whole ethos behind blockchain, from from my perspective at least, is that community. The value of the community basically determines how valuable the organization ends up being. Um, what are some steps you're taking to ensure that this physician community continues to be incentivized to participate? Well, they're now shareholders. So that's, that's an incentive. That's a great step forward. That's a huge <laughs> step forward, by the way. It's no easy task to get um, people to invest in your company. So congrats on that so far. Thank you. Thank you. Um, they also, I mean, physicians are extremely frustrated. The number of physician investors that we have who have already started their own companies and their own businesses and become authors in similar ways with a similar vision and a similar mission to what we're doing is enormous. I'd probably say of the, you know, 170 ish doctors who have invested, 
maybe 20% of them are visionary entrepreneurs who have already seen the writing on the wall and who have already tried to build out their own exit strategy and who have also tried to encourage others to do the same. Um, and so uh, if you think about it, it's really 3% of the world um, population who actually are the change makers, who actually drive adoption and change. And we have leaders in this, um, in this pool of people. I am so impressed and so grateful uh, that some of these people have paid attention to this project because it's a concept that's, that's very abstract, um, you know, but we have presidents of state medical societies. We have chairman of national and regional medical associations. We have um, people who have exited and owned technology, biotechnology companies who are physicians. We have academic leaders uh, who have seen and grabbed hold of this with us. Interesting. So um, I want to go back to, you know, the mission of the company now. So I feel like what you're trying to do in my perspective seems very grand and I, there's plenty of other blockchain companies trying to do similar things in the healthcare space, um, multiple pieces. I initially thought you were working on provider credentialing specifically trying to solve that problem and then connecting that piece of the puzzle to the other, uh, other healthcare blockchain companies potentially in the future. Um, what would you say to people that think that you're trying to do too much in one, in one company as a startup? Well, well, I'm, I'm not really saying that I'm going to solve everything. I'm just trying to create the opportunity for the solutions to exist. Because, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, we're going to build health records for the patients. Well, the doctors are the ones that create these records. Mm -hmm. I'm the one, as the radiologist, I'm the one dictating the note about what I'm seeing when I'm looking at your x-ray. As a surgeon, I'm the one dictating the note about what happened in the operating room. As the emergency physician, I'm the one dictating the note about what happened when you came in with a headache and what we did and why. Without the physician, you can't have health records because we're the ones that create the records. So I'm not, I have no desire to create a health record solution. I have no desire to create a new insurance system. I have no desire to you know, own the world of healthcare. What I do have a desire to do is empower the individual practicing physician to not be forced to interact with the models that are hurting them and their patients anymore. And to have a layer, um, a technology stack where they can now plug into these new systems that all of these other people are going to be building and that are building. And so for those of you out there who wanna build healthcare solutions, Stop colluding with the third parties that we're trying to get rid of and start building the systems that are empowering the individual patients and the doctors that they care for and all the other clinicians that are actually putting the work into the system. Because if you do that, if you zoom out and share this vision with us, then in my opinion, that is how you will be the most su successful. Yeah, and I agree. I think there's a lot of people who do believe in this, you know, so-called Web 3.0, a decentralized internet where people can kind of own their own data and you know, make decisions on their own without all those um, centralized companies kind of watching over them, making sure they're making the right decision. <laughs> um, but there are companies in the blockchain healthcare space like um, ProCredX, Antiva, Block Health, Actual. These are companies I interviewed on my show. They all are trying to improve the provider credentialing space with blockchain in one way or another. How familiar are you with these companies and maybe what are you doing different? I've heard, you mentioned about five companies. I've heard of three of those five. I've had multiple conversations with two of the five, uh, you know, C-level executives in those companies. You know, the difference is, you know, we're building a system for the individual. We're building a system I mean, our, the company name is Humanitarian Physicians Empowerment Community. Mm -hmm. We are building a system that is empowering the individual humanitarian physicians who are actually providing the care. Um, the other systems you mentioned are also going to be potentially making huge changes in our system and fixing this annoying credentialing, uh, you know, problem that we have. You know, I think there's only one self-sovereign project in there that you mentioned, and that's Axel. 
Um, the rest are not self-sovereign. The rest, uh, from what I know, are closed permission systems. And please correct me if I'm wrong. And if you're listening to this and you, you know, are, you know, so found us on a tweet, please tweet to me and like, let me know if maybe I'm wrong here. Um, I won't comment just because I don't know what they're currently up to. So um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I mean, so. Um, the and we're all friends here, by the way, too. I think I think the whole idea is for for us to bring each other up here and have these conversations because blockchain is so new. We we really don't know how it's going to end up working out. And these conversations we're having now um, is part of the struggle to getting to a better place for everybody. And that's why I'm so glad you're you're having this with conversation with me. So please continue. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I guess I guess my point is um, from what I know. We are the only company that is trying to empower the individual practicing physician to do what they do best, untethered or tethered to the systems, Whether, but it needs to be self-directed. It needs to be their choice. If I'm employed by a system, if I'm taking insurance and on an insurance network as an individual practicing physician, it should be because that system makes me a better doctor and makes it easier for me to care for my patients. It shouldn't be because... I can't function without it. It shouldn't be because if I don't do that, I can't find a job. It should be because I want to and because I know it's making me a better doctor. And so we're trying to create the system that will compel these third-party systems who still want to be able to prevail in the future, who still want to you know, be uh, entities that are valued to step up and start providing a better services, service to doctors and patients. Um, rather than to continue to provide services that only have a self-interest. Yeah, and on your platform, do you also intend to have opportunities for like nurses and therapists and other sorts of you know, healthcare professionals, or are you starting off with physicians, MDs to start? You know, MVP scope is such an interesting discussion. You know, you want to build something very simple but very crisp when you're first doing a startup. And I'm building in a system that I know. And the system that I know is the system for physicians because I am a physician. You know, uh, there was a project called Nurse Token that was built a while back that was supposed to be like a reputation and, uh, you know, identity management system for nurses. I do imagine that other practitioners are also going to build out similar systems and we want to be able to integrate with them. Mm -hmm. And if they're built on self-sovereign systems, when the podiatrist writes a note on their SSI system and they anchor it to a DID and they want to share that record with me, with the patient's permission, of course, then if they are built on these standards, then they should be able to do that. Um, whether it's, HPAC that builds all the systems, which I don't want it to be because that's not decentralized, or whether it's, you know, the Podiatry Association of America or the Nurse Practitioner Association of America or whoever builds the other systems that are for those individual communities. It's If it's community first, if it's self-sovereign, it will integrate into this system that we're building. It's a really good answer. Thank you for that. Uh, what's your outlook for the year 2021, next year and beyond? Well, 2021 is actually the 30 year anniversary of the World Wide Web being available to the general public. So um, I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think 2017 was rough. 2018 was rough. 2019, we thought we were kind of recovering and then boom, coronavirus. We've had a rough few years. So I'm hoping that after this last wave of coronavirus that we have, you know, some stability uh, and that we have some real powerful new opportunities for, for people that are, that are being pushed out. I think there's a lot of people thinking, designing and building while they're being sheltered in right now. Uh, and I think that 2021, 2022, we're going to start seeing some real amazing projects out there. And I hope that ours is one of them. That's awesome. Uh, so I have a few other questions here. Uh, one is, Will the future of decentralized identity be hardware-based or biometrics? Um, you know, this is an interesting question. Um, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about biometrics. And when you go down that rabbit hole, you start talking about people who are burned in fires and how their faces change and their fingerprints no longer work. 
Um, you know, those are questions that need to be answered if biometrics is going to be a part of this. Uh, and hardware-based, you lose hardware. Mm -hmm. So unless we're going to be implanting some kind of thing under our skin, which a lot of people are freaked out at that idea, you know, then you run a risk of having things be hardware-based. So my answer is, I think it's going to be a combination of both of those kinds of things, not necessarily implanting under your skin, but, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a combination of hardware, software, biometrics, social engineering that drives us to this future where we have self-sovereignty. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it implanted? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, my, my mother is a Greek Orthodox Christian and she would freak out at the idea that I would even be open to something like that. Oh no, it's the mark of the beast and all this stuff. Um, a lot of it people depends. think that too. Yeah. yeah, it depends. I mean, like if it's a truly decentralized system and I really trust the system and it's something that I could very easily cut out of my body, like the size of a grain of rice in a superficial skin situation, maybe I would consider it. I'd probably want it somewhere that was low impact, low irritating, you know, like my, you know, abdominal wall or, you know, something yeah. like that. <laughs> What's the most influential book you've read? Oh, wow. Um, this one's hard. Uh, there's so many good books out there, like really. And I, you know, I love to read. Um, well, most recently I read Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. And that wasn't the most recent book I've read, but it's a recent book I've read. And, you know, in it, he said something that really resonated with me and made me proud to be the founder of this company. And what he said was something along the lines of, the most powerful businesses of coming decades will be built by entrepreneurs that seek to empower people rather than make them obsolete. Hmm. And so, you know, it's true in my opinion. And so I, I love reading books like that. So also if you're listening and you're, you, you want to tweet out to me some of your favorites, please share. That's an interesting quote because, you know, you think about robotics and the AI age and in a way, some of those companies are making humans obsolete, but in another way, you can also ensure that, you know, the data going into those AI are coming from humans in a very friendly way. You know, you can say, cause you're going to still well, require the humans to keep generating that information and data and fine tuning the AI, I think. Yes, of course. And, and that too, if you think about it, if these AIs are, making current jobs obsolete and those jobs are jobs that people didn't really like right <laughs> then it is empowering individuals to go do the things that they love as long as um you know whatever you know whatever was created is giving back to the system in a way that doesn't disrupt our economic model and uh encourages you know social capital to be valuable still yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think what you're building is is kind of doing that because if you think about it, we're going to have less administrative staff to overlook all these paperwork that providers send over. Um, it'll be more automated, easier to access. Uh, but those people, those administrative staff can now do a better job in onboarding providers into their specific health system, for example, or um, just improving the experience for patients and physicians at the health system. So there's Absolutely. lots of opportunities, you know? Absolutely. And they and they can now have a more fulfilling life where instead of being bean counting paper pushers that every doctor hates, they now can be contributing to making the patient's experience better. 100% agree with you there, yeah. Um, well, Leah, this has been really fascinating. It's been a fantastic conversation and I really enjoyed talking to you. I do wish you the best of luck. Um, and is there anything else you want to share with the audience that maybe I didn't ask or mention? Well, we are having a crowdfund. It ends November 6th at midnight. So if this project sounds exciting to you, if you want to throw your hat in the ring towards a future where you have more freedom and choice in healthcare and where you're happier as a patient or as a physician, then please come invest, become a part of it. Um, and even if you don't want to invest, you can join the movement and follow our progress by going to hpec.io 
And please, if you've heard this and you like what you hear, please tweet to me and uh, send us a message. We'd love to hear from everyone. Awesome. Thanks, Leah. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. It was great. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.